Aloha. It's October 6th, Aloha Friday. I'm Catherine Cruz. Thank you for joining us. Hawaii Talks on the conversation. The deadline for federal help for Lahaina families affected by the wildfires is extended another month. What you need to know to get in the pipeline for emergency assistance. The MacArthur Foundation taps a kumuhula for his innovative work, and it comes with a generous prize. What will he come up with next? And the Hawaii International Film Festival kicks off this month, and this year spotlights films from Hong Kong and Taiwan. But there's something for everyone, including a flick about zombies to get you in the mood for Halloween. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Sunday, October 8th, marks two months since the disastrous wildfires that claimed 98 people and left thousands homeless. Those families are eligible for emergency help thanks to the federal government. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, has just extended its deadline to apply for benefits until October, uh, November. HPR uh, reporter Savannah Harriman-Pote joins us this morning to talk about what families need to know. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, that new deadline is November 9th to apply for individual assistance from FEMA, and that's thanks to a direct request from the governor's office that came down this week. And as you said, we are coming up on the two-month deadline, so traditionally, once a disaster declaration has been declared, ours was on August 10th, folks have 60 days to get their applications for assistance in. So I was looking at the calendar and I was going, oh, 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 <laughs> that's next week. And I started making calls out to FEMA to see if this deadline would be extended. I got in touch with Todd Hoos. He's with FEMA External Affairs on Monday. And he said it was probably gonna happen likely early next week. We said we would check in before Friday. And he got back to me the next day and said, hey, it's been extended. And this process is just one of those, I don't know, unicorn instances in bureaucracy where things can move super, super fast. The governor basically just has to say there's a need, and there definitely is in this case. Here's Todd. We have a number of survivors who have gone off island or are living outside of their normal place because so many were displaced by the fires, um, that it's difficult for their normal mode of communication, and it's overwhelming to be in this kind of a disaster. Um, that they need more time. They need more time to get their their life settled, make sure their family is safe and fed, and and then to worry about signing up for FEMA registration and SBA and and our partners with the Red Cross. And uh, there's so many people to contact. But in this case, it was necessary. Uh, they felt to extend the deadline. Yeah, we just saw right. The Red Cross was urging people in the hotels if you want to be, you know. Uh, want to stay in those hotels, you have to check with us. And so, yeah, lots of people didn't get all the, I think, proper information through. Right. Uh, On-the-ground outreach has been particularly challenging um, in Maui. And as Todd said in that last bite, many people who were impacted by the fires are not on Maui anymore. And they might not be in the community where Red Cross or FEMA is able to do that direct outreach. Um, so that extra time is really going to hopefully help those folks as well. Um, so it's great that they have that buffer, but it's it's kind of a funny thing because I was a little frantic, honestly, when I was reaching out to FEMA about whether or not people would get this extension, especially considering the shutdown that we had potentially on top of that at the end of last week. And when I, when I got Todd on the phone, he was pretty nonchalant about it. And part of the reason is that Todd has been working in FEMA external affairs for seven years. He says he's responded to nearly 100 disasters. And in almost every instance, this deadline has been pushed back. So to me, that kind of raised the question, like, why do we have this deadline at all? We do talk about that, even at my level, certainly not statutory level. Having a deadline helps us get around to it, doesn't it? When you know that you need to go shopping, you wait until just before the grocery store closes and go, gosh, darn it, I got to get there. Well, that last minute urgency helps rise it to a level of urgency for the individuals to just make the phone call. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so they want to have that motivation in place with the understanding that they are reasonable and going to extend the deadline if necessary. Todd said they are still seeing many first-time applications for assistance in the last year. They've gotten anywhere from 20 to 60 brand new applications. Um, So that's definitely helpful for folks. But as you said, these resources, this extra time is only, you know, going to assist people if they know what resources are available. And that was something that came up at the Maui County Council meeting this Wednesday, where many council members talked about frustrations that residents were feeling about confusing or inconsistent communication from the Red Cross, from FEMA, from the Environmental Protection Agency about what they need to do in order to get assistance and what the hazards are in Lahaina um, as it relates to the toxic ash, as it relates to water quality in impacted areas. And they really called on council member, or they really called on these agencies to provide clear information. Um, Todd, for his part, said that he was in that meeting and he was taking notes. (laughs) He said, I have seven pages of notes on things that we need to do better. But they are saying that FEMA and other agencies kind of echoed this. They really need to hear from people about what they need and what they can do better. Um, The representative from Red Cross who was there in that meeting said, if you've seen one disaster, you've seen one disaster. There is constantly a, a learning curve on the ground for these types of events, even for folks who respond to disasters all over the world. And something that Todd brought up as well is that Oftentimes, the people who are responding to these disasters have also been impacted by these disasters. So they are also in an overwhelming situ- situation where they might not have reliable access to housing or concerned about their family or are on some sort of assistance. Yeah, and um, I found during this uh time, very stressful time, in reaching out to the regular uh, PAO, the public information officer uh, you know, from FEMA, uh, you know, she wasn't responding right away, and I thought, gosh, they're usually pretty good. Well, come to find out, she was diverted to Guam, and so she'd been there for the last, like, I don't know, three, four months. And so, you know, people don't realize that is that pe- FEMA officials do get moved around. We had all those teams from all over the country come, and, you know, they were in places, you know, they, they even moved the locations, right? They wanted to be where they could be accessible for folks. Absolutely, yeah. Todd mentioned that FEMA is currently responding to almost 80 major disaster areas um, across the country as well as in other territories. So there is a lot of demand for its resources. We've seen also calls from the president to um, extend their uh, extend their funding, and there are concerns about long-term recovery in certain areas like Puerto Rico and Florida. Red Cross also mentioned that, you know, they're almost entirely volunteer run. So they said that they've had 1,300 people um, respond, volunteers respond on the ground in Maui. They currently have 300 people um, who are working there right now. And those folks come in for a couple of weeks. You have to get them up to speed. And then once they are primed and ready to help, oftentimes they are called elsewhere or have to return to their homes. So a lot of movement is happening on the ground that kind of further complicates this already overwhelming situation. Right, and I think uh, when we had our disaster in Lahaina, when I reached out to, I think, Diane Peters Wynn, I think she was still in Guam. Same kind of thing. So it was, yeah, lots of moving parts when it comes to the administrative staff, folks that are, you know, they're manning the tables, whether they're at the Civic Center or at the hotels. And at some point, those people get diverted to other disasters, other places across the country. So, yeah, but you do need those deadlines because... You can get the sense of urgency that, you know, we need to do it now. I mean, I guess when you think about what we saw on the Big Island with the volcanoes, the inundation there, lots of FEMA people stuck around for a while. Absolutely. Um, Todd said that he is finding in his career that he's returning to communities. Uh, Communities have been impacted by multiple disasters. And so this individual assistance, oftentimes people have multiple claims out. I do want to make a distinction that the deadline has been extended for individual assistance. So that's um, individual folks, households, or businesses who have assistance requests. What has not yet been extended is public assistance. So FEMA also gives aid to utilities, government agencies, some nonprofits. 
as of this morning, that has not been extended. But my conversations that I've had with FEMA and our local Hawaii Emergency Management Agency says that's likely coming down the pipe as well, an extension for that. All right. We'll have to keep an eye out for that. But thank you so much, Savannah. Thank you, Catherine. That was HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote with an update on the extended FEMA deadlines for those applying for benefits. You can find the story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Aloha, I'm John Zach. Each Tuesday beginning October 10th during Morning Edition, All Things Considered and The Conversation, Hawaii residents share personal stories from their military service as part of HPR's collaboration with the StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative. The project, called Hawaii's Military Voices, is supported by Hawaii Pacific University. These veterans have a lot to say. Here's our chance to listen. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Sybil Beats' lead story is about the Maui County budget, which is severely in the hole. Uh, Nathan Eagle joins us today with the story for our reality check. Good morning, Nathan. Long time no talk. Good morning. Yeah, so your story uh, is a bit of a head-scratcher because they've got this shortfall, and and it's surprising what's being proposed to, you know, how to plug those holes. That's right. Uh, The mayor put forward his proposal late last week for the Maui County Council to consider and involves across the board cuts to fill this $31.2 million shortfall, all attributed to the fires, of course, uh, but cuts in that across the board approach involve cutting the fire department, including prevention and others. It's modest cuts there, just in the thousands of dollars, but it definitely caught the eye of some council members already. Yeah, so how they plan to do this? Well, the uh, I talked to Chair Lee, and she uh, said that they'll refer it to the council's budget committee, uh, chaired by Councilman Poulton, and then, or sorry, Councilman Sugimura, and then they'll really have a lively and robust debate, as she put it, and likely give the mayor back their own version. Uh, she says that they're not inclined at all to want to touch uh, the fire department or any of this like across the board approach rather she thinks why don't we just cut the capital improvement project budget uh, to make up that shortfall entirely uh, because a lot of those projects may not be able to be built regardless because of all the resources and personnel being devoted to the recovery effort yeah i mean that sounds logical right the big ticket items rather than kind of nickeling diming diming all the uh, the other county departments it does, yeah, and so they'll they'll have a first kind of look at it uh, yet today at their their meeting, and, uh, and then a couple weeks from now or so is when they'll actually get to the nitty gritty work of it, and so we'll see how they they approach it. Yeah, and it's it's a bit of a head scratcher. I mean, we were just were talking to our reporter Savannah Harriman Pote, and she talked about how there is some government money, you know, a public assistance for government agencies. So, just wondering, you know, why can't we apply for some of that money? I had the same question. Fortunately, I didn't get a chance to talk to the administration yet for this one. Maybe, and hopefully, they'll provide some of those answers as this process plays out. But you would think that with all the federal money pouring in and different relief efforts underway, that um, perhaps that could help offset this this $31 million shortfall. Yeah, and the shortfall is because we just don't have all the what hotel room tax money that we would normally see, right? 
It's some of that. The the bulk of it was property taxes, uh, uh. which are being waived for, for folks who lost their homes. It was also uh, various fees and gas taxes, services, other charges the, the county collects um, that they're no longer expecting to receive uh, for this fiscal year anyway, which ends June 30th. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, prior um, to the fires, you know, during the pandemic, I was thinking at the beginning of this, this year that, wow, Maui was sitting pretty with all the uh, hotel room taxes that were coming in because their hotels were full. And then to have this happen and have the bottom just fall out was pretty dramatic. It's a complete 180 and something they're going to be trying to figure out. There will be a, a lot of policy questions going forward that they're going to have to very very much sort through. Uh, and then, of course, it remains quite controversial still, the whole reopening of West Maui, which uh, could help with revenues, as you hero uh, economists have pointed out. But you have a big chunk of the population out there that, you know, including the thousands who delivered petitions to the governor uh, this week uh, saying, please hold off on reopening West Maui to tourism. So we'll see what happens there as they, they search for uh, some of those lost revenues. Right. Yeah. And the economists were saying that Maui was losing or I think the state was losing like 13 million dollars a day um, because, yeah, some some tourists decided not to go to other islands as well. So, yeah, it's. It's a tough one. You know, you're trying to be sensitive, and I know they're saying that the, the trickle of tourists will be just that, a trickle early on. It's not going to be a big onslaught, you know, after Sunday. That's absolutely true. Yeah, they're saying, you know, don't expect anything overnight. It's going to be months and then into years before they really see things turn around. Yeah, well, hopefully um, the situation improves and that the, the residents don't feel so, I guess, harassed. Uh, I guess maybe it's the fear of it, right? Fear of questions, and uh, it's tough. It's tough. But thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was Nathan Eagle with today's Reality Check. Uh, To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're looking through our old photo albums to revisit a popular landmark that exists only in pictures and memories. Almost a century ago, the Kau Kau Corner Drive-In opened for business in 1935 on the corner of Kapi'olani and Kalakaua Avenue. Passers-by were welcomed by a huge crossroads of the Pacific sign, showing the distance and direction of cities around the world, including New York, Berlin, Cape Horn, Manila, and Shanghai. Open 24 hours, the Cow Cow Corner was a place where you could stop for a burger and a malted shake on your way to a movie date in Waikiki or just to hang out and enjoy the friendly service of the car hop waitresses. Owner Hanley Sunny Sundrum uh, closed the business in 1960. And for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what business renovated and opened up in its place. Think you know? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 with the correct answer and pick up a reusable HB or tote bag if you're the first one to get it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com.
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mary Mackey, author of The Village of Bones. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the peaceful cultures of prehistoric Europe. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Lauren Hana Chai, The Five Senses, an exploration of loss, love, and healing. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. It's an award that falls like pennies from heaven. The MacArthur Foundation selects a handful of people at the top of their fields to honor from science to the arts. And this year, it tapped Kumuhula Patrick Makuakani as one of its fellows. His San Francisco Halal regularly performs at the Palace of Fine Arts in the city by the bay, as well as at the Burning Man Arts Festival in the desert in Nevada. And that is where Makuakani says he was when he got a time-sensitive text last month. All I got was a text message saying that we haven't returned our calls and we're trying to reach you. This is the MacArthur Foundation and calling you with a time-sensitive, confidential matter. And that came through as a text, because I didn't receive their calls. I'm in Burning Man. There is no cell service, really. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is the MacArthur Foundation calling me for? You know, and uh, I never reached her. It took, like, days of calling back and forth and not getting in touch with her and her not getting in touch with me. Finally, like, five days later, I, I got back to San Francisco, and I got, she told me why she was calling. I'm like, oh, my God, what the hell? <laughs> it, was just, it was shocking. Well, yeah. I had visions of you at Burning Man in the mud, you know, making mud angels because you were so thrilled at hearing the news. Yeah. But you didn't really well, know didn't until. Know. Yeah, but I didn't really know. I, okay, so you, you try to, like, think, why isn't my classic foundation calling me? Am I kidding? I'm like, no, I can't be. I must owe the money. Do I owe the money? What, what's going on here? So I didn't really know, and it was frustrating. And walking in that mud, it's like your foot gets stuck with every step. I had to go back to camp and wrap my boots in plastic bags. It was crazy. Yeah, usually, Burning Man, you have dust in every orifice. But, yeah, yeah it's yeah. a little different this year. It was a little different. You got back home and then discovered you won. Um, a MacArthur Fellow. You know, it's like might as well win an Oscar. How, how is this supposed to happen? How do they even know who I am and what I do? You know, it's it was baffling and just <laughs> an incredible amount of gratitude. But it was, yeah, it was a shocker. Well, the pressure's on now because I was thinking the last time we talked, you had just gotten a grant to do Mahu, and yeah. that show was spectacular. I mean, oh, my goodness, just to have Mahu in San Francisco and then to have yeah. it come here. And it was such a wonderful production. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was very happy with that. I was really, really just extremely pleased, especially with the Hawaii production. Every time I do a show here in San Francisco, it, I mean, we're, we're very well received, and that's fortunate for us. But when I take it home to Hawaii, people get, you know, it, you can't help it. People get you in a way that they can never get it over here because it's like it's that hometown idiosyncrasies that only us local people can understand, you know. So as much as people love it here, and they did, it's like uh, back at home, it's like I'm home. I get to be with my people. And, and it's just an exciting opportunity. And to watch these transgender artists, I told them, I didn't want you to be background musicians for dancers. I wanted you to be forefront and center and tell your stories. But not the freaking encyclopedic version, like bring it down, Wikipedia. You guys talk too much. <laughs> Our show was supposed to be 50 minutes first half and 50 minutes second half was an hour and a half and like an hour and 20 minutes. Only ladies. <laughs> it was it, down. it was uh, so heartfelt and very powerful. Aww. You know, and I recall when we had talked a few years ago, you were planning to do something on the cruise lines and then the pandemic hit. And so that got stopped. But then we went in planning to get not for a cruise line for uh, another opportunity. And 
Yeah, so we're still working on that and seeing what happens. But what do you do with $800,000, Patrick? Wow. You know, this is so funny because I dip my toes in the water, a possibility, and then I take them out really fast. And then I dip them again and take them out really fast. So I decided to let myself just enjoy this time of being in a, a fellow and not worry about what I'm going to do with the money, and I'll just let that happen naturally. So I, the only thing that I really thought about so far was this will enable me to um, engage in uh, opportunities and collaborations with fellow Native Hawaiian artists whose work that I really admire and that inspire me. And um, I would love to support what they do. And, you know, and it's a collaboration, so I get a, a huge... Um, I get a lot of inspiration and art making out of that collaboration as well. So it's a win-win for both of us. And um, there are really some wonderful people that I can't wait to share their artistry with the world. For folks who don't know, this is not the type of fellowship that you apply for. You can't apply for this grant. No, right. You have to be nominated. And we don't know how the nomination process is. We have no idea who nominated us. I know that there's a strong vetting process that happens after you're nominated. But you have no idea. That's why when they call people, it's a shocker because you, you didn't apply for it. You have, you have no idea if you get a call. And you know what's sweet is when we got together with the other fellows and the foundation the other day on Zoom, the MacArthur Foundation kept telling us how this is their favorite day the whole year to finally meet everyone. And because the joy, the jubilance is so palpable, it's just incredible. Yeah, off the charts, I, mean, I can imagine. Yeah. How can you not be and, and so, and I have to say, you know, there are people in here who are nuclear physicists and, and mathematicians and social justice and environmental work. Uh, things are really important to, like, shifting our world to making it a better place. And then there's hula. <laughs> and you know what? Hula does the same thing. It's just as important as all those other disciplines. And that makes me really, really proud proud of Hula, proud of my culture, and thankful to all my crew and my ancestors. It's really an award. I know people say this all the time. It's more than me. It's for other people. But it really is in my case. I, I say it takes a village to raise a crew. And, you know, to think, really, by you getting this honor, you honor them. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I couldn't have done it without them. I mean, there's so many people on whom I, I stand the shoulders. I stand on the shoulders of so many people, and I'm cannot even express the gratitude that I have to the countless of people who have helped to get me to this point where I am today. And really to San Francisco, who provided me a place where I felt unshackled, <laughs> but yet always grounded by Hawaii. I've never, never felt once that I, I was apart from home. I'm always felt tethered to the mothership, so to speak. And but being here in San Francisco, which is really a city that celebrates expression and art and also funds you in a way that Hawaii never could, you know, that's the other thing. It's like the funding here, once you tap into the system, is extraordinary. If you have work that's, you know, proves to be something that people want to see, that has an aesthetic appeal. And uh, I think for us, because we have this tradition as well as this contemporary outlook, um, people really appreciate that. And I'm currently trying to reframe this conversation around tradition as something that's stuck and mired in a certain place in time, you know, as a static symbol of heritage and culture, because tradition is really, it's not. It's dynamic. It changes. It shifts with the environment. And in order for us to be vibrant and culturally relevant, things have to change over time. Um, and I recognize how innovative our ancestors were. And, and even the hula ancestors, when you look back at all the old hula that we don't have today, I mean, there was so much innovation in the art form. And it makes us, it makes me look like a, a kindergartner dancing hula. Please, people think I'm innovative. They should look back at all these other hulas that um, our ancestors were teaching and crafting. Well, you know, I was just thinking, would this grant help you expand your reach? You know, because I was thinking of the Mahu show and, you know, gosh, if you could tr travel. Yeah, it would. I mean, I would love to take Mahu on the road. It does. It deserves to be seen that way. So it can. 
the candidate. And the other thing I loved, because we were really well-funded in San Francisco for the Mahu show. Out of the 20 years that we've been applying for our home season, Mahu was the most funded out of all of them because it really resonated with organizations. Because at the time, there was a lot of, um, there was a national discussion about trans rights and the, the vitriol that was thrown against this community. So people really felt that this was an important show. And my point with Mahu was not to go out there on stage with a rallying cry and a strident call for justice. It was like, you know what? All I have to do is let them sing, dance, tell their stories, and be their authentic selves. And after that's over, how can you not? How can you not deny them their humanity and a seat at the table? Because they are such extraordinary people that you would want them there because they belong there. They make us better. And, of course, I'm preaching to the choir at San Francisco. <laughs> well, um, the art is but, just so uplifting. And, yeah. you know, your productions, I think, are brilliant, if if I can throw my two cents in there. And, oh, and well, so, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, so I would love to share my talented Mahu friends with the world. <laughs> so I guess you're, you're just going to massage this then to figure out where do you go from here? Yeah, and then I'm in sort of like, mired in several different projects i'm doing that hiyaka play and i'm also going to be directing an opera in 2020 is it 2026 for the hawaii opera theater about hawaiian patriot timoteo haaleleo it will be the first opera put on by hot the hawaii opera theater in olelo hawaii in hawaiian language and i am super excited and privileged to be working on that production wow so yeah, lots of uh, lots of things you've got to get off your to do list before you can figure out then where else you go right. with this MacArthur. Group. Yeah, right. Exactly. You're yeah. a busy so, man. It's a good problem to have. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, gosh, I don't know a- anything else you want to share with your audience because yes, I, I I have something kind of really super freaking awesome what? to tell you. <sighs> So one of our signature pieces is We Dance a Hula to Roberta Flack's uh, First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. And we performed it with Roberta Flack many years ago because she saw a YouTube clip of us dancing. And her manager is from Hawaii. So that's how the connection was made. Long story short, this last year, December, I read online that Roberta Flack had ALS and she couldn't sing anymore. And I called her manager to say, oh, my God, and just to offer my support and condolences. I was just really heartbroken to hear about that. And her manager told me that, yeah, she has a a breathing tube. um, She can't speak. She has a feeding tube. The only way she can communicate is by looking at you and holding your hand. And she goes, the only thing right now that really sort of gives her support and life and light is art. Her friends come over to her place to either sing or play for her. And that's what really gives her, sustains her, you know, to make this life livable. And I'm like, wow. Then she asked, by the way, are you going to be in New York in the next month? I'm like, uh, Suzanne, if you're asking me if I would be willing to perform for Roberta Flack, freaking tell me that date and I'll be there. So I took six dancers. We performed in Roberta Flack's home for an audience of one in her living room. And there were a few other people there, but for us, we did a 30-minute set for Roberta Flack. And it was just one of the most memorable things we've ever done as a hollow. Blew me away. Well, Patrick, that story is so powerful because I just mentioned Roberta Flack's situation because we had just talked with our general manager, Jose Fajardo, who has ALS. And oh, uh, many people don't know, you know, what you go through when you're struggling oh, with this. Oh, horrible. Yeah, so so I thank you for sharing that story about Roberta Flack. And, oh, you're very welcome. Oh. Yeah. You know, someone who is like the last chapter of their life is like coming upon them, and yet they're still, they're not going to lie down and go quietly. They still want to like enjoy whatever last vestiges of light and art that they can. And I just, what a way to like approach life. I'm, I hope that I'm that strong when my time comes. Well, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your art, for your talent, for what you do, for those special moments that Uh, you share with us, you know, whether with someone like Roberta Flack or, you know, with the crowd, you know, with the Mahu Productions. Um, Thank you for what you do, Patrick. I really appreciate that. Thank you for the conversation, and I hope you have a great day. All right. You too. Aloha. Aloha. 
That was Patrick Makuakane of Nalehula Ikaveku, who was just selected as a MacArthur Foundation Fellow. The prize comes with an $800,000 grant over a five-year period and honors creativity and innovation, and we can't wait till we see what he comes up with next. The first time ever I saw the sun rose in your eyes. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana, working to protect watersheds and aquifers since 1929. For fresh water now and for future generations. Learn more at protectoahuwater.org. Jordan Peele is the current king of black horror, and recently he's been working with new and legendary voices in the game to redefine the genre. It's not that everyone had get out to me. It's that everyone had an expression of their fear, and you can't ignore your blackness when you're writing a horror story. Jordan Peele on Black Horror, next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Now it's time to pop today's Backyard Quiz answer out of the oven. Earlier in the show, we waxed nostalgic about the popular eatery, Cow Cow Corner, owned by Hanley Sonny Sundstrom. His 24-hour drive-in was established in 1935 on the corner of Kapi'olani and Kalakaua Avenue. He also owned Cow Cow Jr. on Nimitz Highway and Cow Cow Kitchen, a pancake house and fried chicken restaurant in Waikiki. Unfortunately, uh, Sundstrom lost the lease to the Cow Cow Corner property in 1960. In October of the same year, the new renters, Spence and Cliff Weaver, converted the space and opened Coco's Coffee Shop, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. The prime piece of real estate was later taken over by the Hard Rock Cafe in the late 80s, and today the Honolulu Coffee Experience Center sits on the busy corner where the crossroads of the Pacific once reigned. You can see a 3D replica of the cor- colorful sign with arrow markers showing distances to military bases at the Pearl Harbor Visitor Center. We had no winners today, but that was our quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Halloween is fast approaching, and if you're looking to get your fix of scares, Decade of the Dead is a zombie flick shot here on Oahu that might just be what you're looking for. It was co-directed by local filmmaker Fairai Richman. He's making his directorial debut after years working on music videos and major film productions as a producer. Richmond is the son of veteran Hawaii actor Branscombe Richmond, who has been a familiar face in film and TV since the 1960s. The Conversations' Russell Subiano sat down with the younger Richmond in our studios to talk about the film. So the film takes place 10 years after a global zombie outbreak, and our story follows three survivors, seafaring survivors that have survived through bounty hunting and they retrieve a a, a bounty basically they rescue a survivor from this large cult gang called the sworn and they bring this survivor to this island to his group of villagers and survivors and there the story sort of takes off and we find that some very interesting things are happening on this island and our heroes have to fight and survive. You filmed Decade of the Dead entirely on Oahu with a local production crew and a 
pretty diverse cast as well. Mm -hmm. Usually zombie movies or horror movies in general tend to be very makeup heavy or location specific or maybe even special effects heavy. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome in order to do this kind of genre movie here? Yeah, this movie was extremely difficult. We have scenes that take place on water, in the water, under the water. Basically, every scene is shot on location. Not basically, every scene in this movie is shot on location in Hawaii, in the jungle. Even if it was an interior set, it's an interior set on the water or an interior set in the jungle. So that can be very difficult. Luckily, though, the infrastructure here is a very well-oiled machine to produce and execute films and television shows. So we have a long history of doing that. And I think that this film really shows that you can actually do everything, not just the, the filming and the actual on-set production, but you can actually start from the idea to the pre-production, to the on-location, on-set production, to the post-production, down to the distribution, and so on and so forth. When you think about how Hawaii is used in film, whether stories are set here or used as a backdrop for other stories, what does it say about the versatility of Hawaii in being able to tell a story? I mean, if you think about it, indigenous people are the original storytellers, right? Story is probably the most powerful thing we have as a human species, right? It's the thing that we have passed on throughout generations to generations for thousands of years. It's the reason why we still live. You know, don't put your hand on this fire or you will burn, jump in the water and stay under for too long, you will drown and you will die, right? So we know the, those things based upon stories and experience. And we are indigenous people. So we have been here doing that for the longest. We're the best at it, in my opinion. And so I know that Hollywood has always known us to be laborers in the film industry. We are widely known to productions in Hollywood that if you go to Hawaii, there are some of the top tier crews exist there because we have the ability to work in all different environments. Every time you shoot a show here, you're in the wind, you're in the sun, you're in the humidity, you're in the ocean, you're in the sand, you're in the jungle, you're in the rain, right? You're very extreme locations and the people and the crews here and the cast, they're very adept to those conditions. But I feel that we really haven't had our place in the sunlight when it comes to seeing us as creators and original storytellers of our art. And I think that this film is a really good example, along with many others. There's many other filmmakers that are, that are showing great leaps and bounds in this particular area. But I feel like this movie especially shows that, hey, you know, we took this project and we, we mounted it and we went into production and we executed it. And so it, it shows the people and Hollywood that not only can we make small, little, intimate character pieces, but we can make large-scale productions and, and do it well. And it, it was a big thing for me, too, to show the next generations, you know, the young kid in Waianae or Kalihi go, hey, you know what? Those guys made that movie here. Oh, I can do that, too. Hey, that guy co-directed that movie. Hey, that guy produced that movie. That guy's, a, that guy's Hawaiian. That guy's Polynesian, right? When, when that dynamic changes and you can see somebody across the table or somebody in the forefront of a creative position that looks like you, that is where real change begins, you know? Yeah. And, it, and it especially has been that way in, let's say, in Aotearoa in New Zealand, when you can see, oh, Taika Waititi, oh, Peter Jackson, right? And they, they're like, they're probably 30 years ahead of us. But I think right now, especially, this is our time because as Polynesians, we have Dwayne Johnson, right? He showed that, hey, a Polynesian guy can be a bankable movie star, if not the most bankable right now. You got Jason Momoa, right? You got Taika. You got Destin Daniel Cretton, who did those amazing movies, uh, Shang-Chi, Short Term 12. And so I think we are pushing our chess piece closer on the chessboard, and, and we're getting there slowly but surely, sometimes quickly. Because when we make this art and we, make, we do these things, we, we're holding our ancestors. We're holding the whole population on our shoulders, you know, driving us forward into the light, into success. 
I read that zombie movies initially started out as a way to propagate fear about primitive cultures, but have also over the years become an expression of our fear of mass contagion and a response to civil rights. What do you find so interesting about the zombie genre? So I'll have to say this. I, because I got to give a nod to our other director, Adam Dio and Enzo Lauren uh, Simmons, they brought this project to Sight and Sound Productions, which my mentor and good friend Brian Spicer owns. They brought this project over, and I wasn't involved at the time. I was making commercials at Sight and Sound. And through a certain certain circumstances, I got involved, and I'm not a huge zombie movie fan, right? I'm more of just like a good classic movie fan. And so I, I remember I watched this movie 28 days later, to sort of get me into the movie. And then I watched a bunch of other zombie films, Train to Busan, World War Z, and the list goes on and on. And what I found out when I was watching these films was they were using zombies, the theme uh, or the backdrop of zombies, to tell personal stories, right? So if you look at those films, there's like Train to Busan is about a man's love for his daughter. 28 Days Later is a really good example. It's really about a a man who, who awakens in a zombie apocalypse, finds love, and then the hunted becomes the hunter. And so I guess for me, I wanted to bring a, a much more global perspective, bring a more global audience to this movie and not just the, just the horror film community. I wanted to bring up, make a movie for everybody. And for me, my whole perspective was putting sort of like normal people in abnormal situations, putting people who love each other in extreme situations and seeing how that conflict would affect them and the, the lengths that they would go to, to 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 protect the people that they love. And that was really the, at the core of the movie for me, was about love and loyalty and friendship and the human condition and fighting for the things that we, we love so much and, and hold sacred. And this is an example that we've seen throughout history, right? You could say zombies or you could say the Lahaina uh, Maui fires, right? And seeing people come together to help each other to survive. And so that's how I saw this whole zombie. That was just a catalyst or an example to sort of tell the story of the human condition and shine some light on the positive aspects of the human condition, which is basically love for one another and helping each other. Your dad is in the film. Your dad, Branscombe Richmond, is a longtime Hollywood veteran. I know people would recognize him upon seeing him. How did he instill a love for film in you, and then how did you make it your own? I'll go back one, even one step further, and then I'll get to that. So we fell into this industry by just chance, right? My grandfather was in a movie in Tahiti, and then Marlon Brando brought this movie, Mutiny on the Bounty, over there, and my grandfather was in that film. He wrote a song that, that ended up in the movie. He became friends with Marlon Brando. Eventually, he made his way back to L.A. to film the stage scenes of that movie, and that's how we are in the film industry. So my father grew up on TV and movie sets his whole life, right? My, back in the days, my grandfather was very talented. His name was Leo Richmond, very talented man. He sang, he danced. And in those days of the 1950s and 60s, they had a lot of productions where it was a lot of singing and dancing and spectacle. And so that's how he kind of like survived in this business. And so my father grew up on set with his father. And eventually my dad got into the film industry as a stuntman actor and I grew up on movie and TV sets with him. And, you know, I was very fortunate because when my dad's career started to to really take off, I was still a pre-adolescent and I was also very artistic. So I would be on set with my dad and all I wanted to do was be around my father, right? So any chance I could get, any time I had off of school, if I could skip school, I would. I could just be on set with my father. It was this magical world where I could watch people creating things Everybody sort of acted like a child on on the set, and then there was free candy all day long. <laughs> it was like Disneyland to me. And this was before I was really into girls or, or sports or anything, and, and so that's where my love came from. And so, you know, as a child, I would ask my dad, hey, can I use your video camera? And then I would make little films from the age of nine, and I probably broke like five of his video cameras <laughs> until I turned 18, you know, doing crazy things. But I always had this love for filmmaking, and that really has been my father and I's connection because I found that one thing in my life that I loved more than anything, right? That was my sport. 
it's the thing that wakes me up in the morning. It's the thing that I think about when I'm going to sleep at night. And the, really the secret sauce for me is you have an idea, you can fantasize and dream about that idea, and then you write that down, and then you get a, a pack of thieves and hoodlums together, and you go out and, and shoot and execute that idea, and then you go to the editing room and you and you mold it and create it again into what it is, and then you package it, and then you can show it to an audience. And that has really been the secret sauce for me and probably every filmmaker, is taking something out of my head and giving it to other people and expressing myself. And so, yeah, you know, I've kind of fallen into this world of making these films, the films of my childhood, you know? And so it's, it's, it's really a bonus for me because I can still remain a child and I, and I still don't have to grow up. Because I really am. That's what I am. I'm a, I'm a child. I have two children. All I do is play with my children all day long. I like toys more than my son likes toys. You know what I mean? I buy him toys because I want to play with that toy. So filmmaking can keep you young. And it's a great job if you can get it. And, um, and I'll say this, you know, filmmaking is, is, is extremely difficult. So for me... It's come through. It's come with a lot of challenges, right? I mean, if if you want to get into the film industry because you want to become rich or famous, that that's not going to be the thing for you. I would get. I would do something else because, in order to survive, at this, you have to love it more than anything else because it is so difficult. You you cannot do this for money or commercial reasons you have to you have to do it because you absolutely will die if you don't do it you know what i mean yeah. and that has always been at the forefront of my heart and and my mind and um and i'll just keep doing it and i'll pay for it if i have to to the day i die yeah <clears throat> i i noticed uh on your imtb page that most of your work is is behind the camera any plans to get in front of the camera is that is that an aspiration at all yeah you know i also do stunts and i do a little bit of acting you know i just did a show chief of war that jason momoa wrote directed and produced and so that was my dream to run through the jungle with a spear and a malo half naked and i've always wanted to do that i think i was born to do that and um when i was a child i wanted to be an actor i saw movies and i was like i want to be in movies and then once I started to hang out with my father on set, I realized very quickly that the actor isn't necessarily the one who makes the movie. Mm -hmm. And for me, it wasn't enough to just be in the movie. I wanted to create that world because I have a huge imagination and I, I wanted it to be mine. You know what I mean? I wanted to make all the decisions about how the story goes. And you don't make a movie by yourself. You make a movie with hundreds, if not thousands of people sometimes. But my strength, I think, is in storytelling. I sure as hell love it. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for your time, Fight. I really appreciate talking to you. Really God enjoy you. talking to you as well, man. You too. Mahalo. That was local filmmaker Fai Richmond talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Richmond's feature film, Decade of the Dead, will screen at the Hawaii International Film Festival on Sunday, October 15th, and Tuesday, October 17th. Both screenings are sold out, but check the HIF website on the day of the show as more tickets may become available. That is it for this Aloha Friday. We'll have reports from Maui as Sunday marks the day we welcome visitors back to Maui. Even though not everyone agrees, it's a good idea. What do you think? Call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Listen to our show on the HPR website or anywhere you tune in for podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.